Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13 is our text for this morning. Again, we will uh, spend the majority of our time looking at verse 13. I opened last week saying this. Uh, actually, Warren Wearsby said this. He said, it doesn't take very long in the Christian life before one comes to understand that life is not a playground. Rather, it's a battleground. Life is not a playground. It's not a field to be playing on. It's a battlefield. Earlier in our study of Ephesians, and I noted this last week as well, I noted that Ephesians can be broken down into three distinct uh, parts, if you will. Chapters 1 through 3, dealing with the believer's wealth. Those were those foundation chapters. Paul, Paul labored three whole chapters worth to make sure that we understood uh, the, the doctrine that we needed to understand so that we could build the practicality of the Christian life or that we could understand what we're supposed to do in the Christian life on that doctrinal foundation. Chapters 4... Through chapter 6, verse 9, which is where we ended up a couple of weeks ago, uh, Paul labored there talking about the believer's walk. That is that practical uh, uh, teaching there, what we are to do in light of what God has already done for us. It's the Ephesians 4, chapter 1, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In light of all that God has done for you, in light of all his saving grace, in light of all of his great mercy shown to, to you, now walk this way. And then beginning in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, Paul undertakes here the theme of the believer's warfare. Life is not a playground. It's a battleground. So believer's wealth, the believer's walk, and here we are in chapter 6 studying the believer's warfare. With that being said, we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Brief introduction. Let me encourage you to stand with us if you can. Turning our attention to our text for this morning, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, pens the following words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. You may be seated. Perhaps you weren't with us last week, and even if you were, it's good to get a running start at the text. So let me go back and spend a couple of minutes by way of brief review here. What I labored to do last week in one message, we see that it's going to take two, is to give you four points of clear application, four four pieces of information that are critical for putting together our battle plan. If life is war, if we really are in the spiritual battle, and we are, that Paul tells us that we're in, then, then we ought to have a battle plan. We ought to know who we're up against, and we ought to know what his schemes are so that we can mount a counterattack. And the first thing that we notice, just let your eyes drift back to verse 10 there. I said, be strong in God's strength. That's the first thing that we have to do. That's battle plan number one, be strong in God's strength. And I noted last week that 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 language there, be strong, it's actually a passive imperative. Uh, What that means is that it's probably better translated this way. Be made strong in the strength of his might. Be made strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And I said, well, I asked the question. I said, what is Paul laboring to teach us here? What does Paul want us to get from verse 10? 
I think the thing that Paul wants us to get from verse 10 is that we have no power outside of Christ. In other words, we cannot gut out the Christian life on our own. Uh, we, we cannot fight the spiritual battle that we're in, in and of our own strength, in and of our own flesh. Paul wants us to know that we must be made strong in the Lord. By who? By him. He must make us strong. How are we made strong in the Lord? We're made strong in the Lord by by taking advantage of the means of grace that he's given us. He's left us his word. He's he's left us the fellowship of like-minded believers in the body of Christ. He's he's left us prayer. John Piper once mentioned that prayer is our wartime walkie-talkie, if you will. Uh, it's, it's how we communicate with God. He communicates to us through his divinely inspired and revealed word. We communicate to him by coming to him in humility in prayer. But God has left us wonderful means of grace that we can employ this side of eternity while we are engaged in the spiritual battle that we're engaged in. And in doing so, we're made strong in the strength of the Lord. Remember, we can't do anything uh, in and of our own selves. Jesus himself said it in John chapter 15, verse 5. He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, or a woman remains in me, uh, then you can bear much fruit. But apart from me, finish the sentence, you can do nothing. Yeah. But at the same time, at the exact same time, while we can do nothing in and of our own strength, uh, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Jesus speaking there, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so how did Paul respond there? He said, well, then I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. So we're powerless in and of ourselves. We have all the power that we need in Christ because of what he has done for us. We must be made strong in the strength of the Lord and the strength of his might. Battle plan number two was that we must be protected by God's armor. Look at verse 11. Paul says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I noted last week that this imagery, this armor imagery, probably came from two places. Number one, Paul was on house arrest uh, while he wrote this letter to the church uh, at Ephesus, probably tethered to or chained uh, to a Roman guard or a Roman centurion. And so Paul would have had much time to, to look at and to visualize that, that Roman soldier's armament. And what Paul did, I think, is he, is he began to take what he was seeing physically on that Roman soldier and he began to apply it spiritually. And secondly, I think that this imagery comes at least in part from the fact that Paul had a clear understanding of his Old Testament Bible. Of course, that was the only Bible that Paul had, right, was the Hebrew Bible. And Paul was trained, he was schooled from a young man uh, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Paul would have known God's Word. He was zealous for the Word of God. A Pharisee of Pharisees, as a matter of fact, before he came to know Christ. Very, very knowledgeable uh, of God's Word. And I think that Paul is probably drawing from some of the prophecies that we see back in Isaiah. I mentioned last week Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah chapter 52, uh, Isaiah 59. Uh, those, those chapters there uh, depict uh, and use the imagery of Yahweh as a valiant warrior coming, coming with his Messiah to vindicate his people. Uh, and and, and we, we see Yahweh in those chapters uh, suited in armor. We need to be protected by God's armor. 
We're going to spend the next seven weeks walking through each piece of the armor. I didn't say much about the armor last week. I'm not going to say a ton about the armor this week. We'll get into the armor beginning next week. We'll take the next seven weeks to walk through it together. But we must be protected by God's armor. We must be strengthened in the Lord and protected by his armor. And number three from last week, I mentioned that we must be knowledgeable about our enemy. And I mentioned the fact that we acknowledge this principle in a lot of other areas of life, uh, in competitive sports, uh, even at the high school level and the collegiate level and the professional level, uh, coaches and players across every uh, sport discipline will oftentimes watch uh, film, hours and hours of film of their opponent before game day so that they can understand this is how they move and this is, that these are their plays so that they can mount a, an adequate counterattack, so they can come up against their opponent and be prepared. Our military does the same thing. We don't go to war without a plan. Uh, The country that goes to war without a plan gets snuffed out pretty quickly. And so we send reconnaissance well in advance. We we send people over. We're scouting out. We're we're, we're sending uh, aerial aircraft over. We're, We're snapping pictures. And all this intel is coming back. And we're trying to assimilate it all and put it together so that we can put together a plan that is sufficient. Likewise, if we do that in competitive sports and we do that with our own military, how much more important is it that we do that when it comes to our spiritual lives? We must know the one that we're up against. Uh, I noticed uh, last uh, week uh, with you that uh, there are three specific things in the text that Paul tells us about our enemy. Uh, Look at verse 11. Paul tells us that our enemy is a schemer. He schemes. It's the Greek word methodia. It's where we get our English word methods. Uh, our, our enemy, uh, he's, he's crafty. He's, 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 a, he's well-versed in trickery. He's cunning. Uh, that word methodia, that Greek word there, has the idea also of lying in wait. You know, you, you think of the lion or, or the tiger on, the, on the, the, the plains there, just crouching, waiting for that uh, critter to come by that he can pounce on. That's the imagery there. Of Satan. He schemes. He's tricky. He's crafty. He's cunning. He lies in wait. He masquerades as an angel of light. He seeks to blind men's eyes from the truth of the gospel. I noted that he twists or he mixes just enough truth with falsehood so that it seems palatable and it goes down easy. And then I turned my attention to you, college students, and I said, Be careful. Be careful what you hear in your classes. Be careful what you hear in your psychology class. Be careful what you hear in your science class. Be careful what you hear in anthropology classes. And make sure that you have a firm foundation. Make sure that you have a solid theology so that when you hear what you hear, you can be discerning. Likewise, young people, high school, uh, be discerning. We must know the truth so that we can discern what is false. Our evil one, our the one who schemes, he, he flaunts sensuality. Boy, we see this. I mean, you almost can't flip through the TV channels at night. I mean, every commercial, every sitcom, uh, and maybe I shouldn't say every, that's a blanket statement, but much of what comes to at us by way of media flaunts sensuality. And what they're trying to sell you, the bill of sale there is, if you'll just give in to this, you'd really be happier. God's holding out on you which is one of the ways that Satan schemes, does he not? He tries to discount the goodness of God. He tries to discount the the graciousness of God in providing exactly what you need. And he comes along and he tells you, no, you need something else. If you really want to be happy, go do this. 
Speaking about forgiveness, one of the schemes of the evil one is to, is to encourage us to harbor bitterness and envy, just to let it stew in us. I mentioned last week, if you're here this morning and, and uh, there's a relationship that is tainted with bitterness or envy or strife uh, or, or a harbored unforgiveness, that is one of the schemes of the devil. Don't let that smolder, friends. Uh, when, when, when you take embers from the fire and you put them under the rug in the living room, it doesn't make the embers go away. It burns the house down is what it does. Speaking about forgiveness, Paul said this. He said, we forgive. Second Corinthians chapter 2, he said, we forgive so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. He schemes. And we don't want to be outwitted by Satan. Therefore, we want to be quick to forgive. I noted last week also that you can be sure that Satan is particularly active when a Christian is newly converted. Boy, Satan would love, I mean, just boom, real quick, like a fly on stink. A a young Christian is a particularly enticing target for the evil one. When the Christian is afflicted or suffering, you can also be sure that Satan is near, uh, encouraging you to doubt the goodness of God, encouraging you to doubt the sufficiency of his grace. I also noted that when the Christian has achieved some notable success, you can be sure that Satan is not far behind. As a matter of fact, Satan would love to hold the bottle of sweet pride for you so that you can drink it to its dregs. When the Christian is idle, you can be certain that Satan is near. Idle hands, finish the sentence, are the devil's playground, right? Right? If you don't have something to do, uh, something that's pleasing Christ, if you don't have something to do that's pleasing Christ, you can be sure that Satan will come along and will give you something to do that doesn't please Christ. When the Christian is isolated from from others who share his faith, or when the Christian is separated from uh, the fellowship of like-minded believers, you can be sure that Satan is near. And then when the Christian is dying, you can be sure that Satan is near. Are all God's promises really true? Do you really have a hope of heaven? Was Jesus' blood really sufficient for you? You can be sure when the Christian is dying, Satan is not far behind. He's a schemer. He's a schemer. Where we left off, and here's where we'll pick up this morning, in verse 12, is that he is evil. Our adversary, he is evil. He's strong. He's more strong than you think he is. He schemes. He's cunning. He's crafty. He's, he's, he's great at trickery. He's wicked, but he's evil. Look at verse 12. That's particularly this phrase right here. Paul says, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, you can rest assured that our, our adversary, the devil, hates God, and he hates you too. He hates the truth. He hates righteousness. He hates the cross, and he hates any desire to do good. He hates it. He's opposed to everything that God is for, and he is hell-bent on wreaking as much havoc as he can until his time runs out. One of the most effective ways that Satan can wreak havoc in the life of a believer Uh, is to divert your eyes and your attention away from Christ. That shows his evilness, his maliciousness, is that he would love to do anything he can do to divert your eyes, your attention, your heart away from Christ. Because if he can divert your eyes, if he can divert your attention, if he can divert your... 
cause your heart to be far from God, I can tell you exactly where your eyes and exactly where your attention and exactly where your heart are centered. On you. And likewise, on me. And Satan would love for your eyes to be on you. Satan would love for your eyes to be on your circumstances. Satan would love for your eyes to be on your failures and your shortcomings. So that you live with this at least low-grade, constant condemnation and fear. Those are two of Satan's often used evil weapons to keep your eyes off Christ. Guilt and fear. Or condemnation and fear. Satan would love to keep you wallowing in that low-grade state of guilt and fear. Here's what some of Satan's fiery darts of accusations might sound like. How can you believe that God is for you when you survey all the difficult circumstances in your life? How can you believe it? Tell me. Tell me, Christian, how you can believe that God is for you. He's not for you. If he was for you, he would stop this. If he was for you, life would be easy. If he was for you, life would be comfortable. If he was for you, you would have no lack of that which you want. There is scarcely a greater lie from the pit of hell. How can you believe that God loves you and is for you when you survey all your circumstances? It's one of Satan's fiery darts of accusation. Here's another one. Friend, your sins are vast. Your sins are many, and you have no good defense. You have no good defense. What do you have to say for yourself? Boy, that's a dart, a fiery dart that Satan loves to write at your heart. How about this one? You say you're forgiven, but how long will God put up with your failure? I mean, at what point is God going to step in and say, enough is enough, I'm done with you? Your failure, right at your heart. How about this one? Given your track record, what hope is there that you'll persevere till the end? Given your track record, you weak and miserable failure, what guarantee, what, what hope is there that you'll persevere till the end? Boy, that's a fiery dart. If you're tempted to, friends, or if you've already bitten into the hook of Satan's lies, let me remind you of Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. Here's some balm to your soul if you struggle with some of those fiery darts of accusation. Paul says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us. You see, Paul's making a challenge there. I don't want to divert your attention too far away from Ephesians, but Paul's making a challenge there in Romans 8, 33 and 34. He's basically saying this, who is there that can step forward and bring any accusation against those whom God has already declared righteous? Answer, none. No one. Never. None. No one. Never. But boy, this side of eternity, our hearts will accuse us, our conscience will accuse us, the world at times will accuse us, and Satan for sure, the accuser of the brethren, he's always looking for an opportunity to prosecute us in our own hearts. You, you good-for-nothing sinner. Why would God want to have anything to do with you? Why would he want to redeem such a pitiful, 
individual. But therein lies the glory of the gospel. Because Jesus Christ has only come to save pitiful sinners. Those who see no need for a Savior, salvation is not afforded. It is only those who understand that they are the pitiful sinner that Satan oftentimes accuses us of being that enjoy God's great salvation. Speaking of the accuser, John in Revelation chapter 12 says this. He says, I heard in a loud voice in heaven, and that loud voice said, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, he who accuses them day and night before our God. Friends, John, the writer of Revelation there says, We have an accuser who accuses us before God night and day. But can I tell you that we have a mighty Savior who intercedes on our behalf day and night, and he looks at his Father and says, It is finished. It is done. The work of salvation is complete. Innocent, declared righteous, guilty, no more. Not because of them, but because of me. Because of my perfect righteousness credited to their otherwise bankrupt accounts. See, Satan can accuse us of being unfaithful. He can accuse us of breaking our promises. He can accuse us of having sins that are too many to number. He can, he can accuse us of having waning zeal for God. He can accuse us of, of our prayerlessness. He can accuse us of our spiritual hypocrisy. We're all guilty of all those things. And so Satan asks, how can you be such a failure in light of the gospel that you believe? That's a fiery dart, my friend. How can you, how can you be such a failure in light of the gospel that you say you believe? John MacArthur says this, he notes that it's not the accusations that are made against believers are all the time untrue. They're not always false. The fact that we are not yet sinless is obvious. But even when a charge against us is true, it is never grounds for condemnation because all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been covered by the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ and we stand clothed in His righteousness. Hallelujah. Even though our conscience, even though the world, even though Satan may accuse us, they have no legal ability to condemn us for our sin. And you ask, well, how is that? And the answer to how is that is one of the most glorious truths in all of history. And that is that, friends, in Christ, God does not relate to you on the basis of your sins. God relates to you on the basis of of his son. When Satan accuses us of failing to meet God's perfect righteous standard, Jesus, as it were, looks at the Father and says, I paid for that. You see, our security, our salvation, that, that charge of no condemnation, it's grounded in the, on the objectivity of Christ's finished work on our behalf. And that, friends, never changes. Let me take you back to Pilgrim's Progress for a moment. I noticed, or I noted last week that if you have not read a copy of uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, put that on your absolute short list of books to read. Highly recommend it. 
In chapter 4 of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, who's the main character, we talked a little bit about him last week, the main character of the story, he's traveling through the Valley of Humility when he encounters Apollyon, Satan. And after a brief exchange, Apollyon immediately begins to accuse Satan. And he, he accuses, or accuse Christian, and he accuses Christian of being unfaithful. It's a fiery dart. Listen to this exchange and see if it doesn't sound like uh, something that you've struggled with at some point or other. Here's what Apollyon, Satan says. You've been unfaithful to your master. Christian replies, how have I been unfaithful to him? Well, you stumbled and you fell into the slough of despond. You turned aside, out of the way, to go to legality's house for help and advice on one worldly wise man. You slept and you lost your book along the way. Talking about his Bible here. You were ready to turn back at the sight of the chained lions. You were fearful. And when you talk about what you've seen and heard along the way and all that your Lord has done for you, it's with a certain inward desire for vain glory. Guilty. Christian admits it. He says, all this is true and much more, which you've left out. But the prince I serve is merciful and he's ready to forgive. Besides, these sins possessed in me, they were committed in your country. I've groaned under them. I've been sorry for them. But now I have obtained pardon from my prince, Jesus. Apollyon fires back. I am an enemy of this prince and I hate his ways and his person and his people. I've come for the purpose of arresting you. Christian responds, be careful, Apollyon, what you do, for I'm in the king's highway, the way of holiness, and I'm in his service. Therefore, take heed that you do not overstep your bounds. Apollyon says, I'm without fear in this matter. Prepare yourself to die, for I swear by the infernal powers that I shall go no further. Then Apollyon hurled a flaming dart at Christian's heart, but Christian held out his shield. We're going to talk about that shield of faith here in just a couple of weeks. And he blocked that arrow. Christian drew his sword and he braced himself for battle. Apollyon came at him in fury, throwing his darts as thick as hail. Apollyon perceived that Christian was gradually growing weaker, taking advantage of this. He took hold of Christian and threw him to the ground. Then Christian's sword fell out of his hand. Now, said Apollyon, I'm sure that I have you. And he almost beat him to death. But as God would have it, as Apollyon gave his final blows to finish Christian off, Christian's hand touched his sword, the sword of the Spirit, which gave him fresh spirit. He gripped the sword with all his might and said, Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise again, giving Apollyon a, dead, a deadly thrust which caused him to fall back as if mortally wounded. Summoning all his strength, Christian rose to his feet and advancing toward him, cried, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through God who loved us. Boy, does that exchange not look like something that takes place probably multiple times throughout any given Christian's normal day? The accuser, all those fiery darts. And I'll say what I've said so many times before and I said last week is that if you don't have God's word hidden in your heart, like Christian did here. And all these things were more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Anybody know the street address for that verse? Romans chapter 8, right? If you don't have God's word memorized and hidden in your heart and hidden in your mind, you will have no weapon against the evil one. You'll have no defense. 
the words of the well-loved hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, who was penned, those words, that hymn penned by Martin Luther. The words there capture the truth concerning our evil enemy. Listen, these are familiar. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and his power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. He's powerful and he's cruel. He's evil. He hates the things of God and he hates God's people. And he would love for you to live the rest of your days with your eyes on yourself. Wallowing with a low-grade sense of guilt and fear. You've got to have God's word hidden in your heart and your mind. We'll talk about those defenses in the coming weeks. Satan is powerful. He's strong. He schemes. He's evil. But Satan is powerful. You need to know that. But Jesus Christ is more powerful by far. You see, Satan and his demonic host, they are invariably strong. They're cunning. They're evil beyond description. But it must be noted that Satan is a created being. Okay? He's, he's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's a created being, limited in power. Powerful, yes, but limited in power. For as powerful as he is, we must never forget that Jesus Christ is infinitely more powerful. Satan's created. Colossians 1.16, Paul writes, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, and then here it goes, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. That language sound familiar to you? It ought to, because it's right here in Ephesians chapter 6. That's what we're up against. We noted last week the word against. It appears four times uh, here in our text. Why, why did Paul... Uh, labor to use that word four times in a row because he wants us to know what we're up against. We're up against a powerful foe, but we must never overstate his power. Jesus Christ, our victor, is more powerful by far. Jesus Christ is not only more powerful by virtue of his being Satan's creator, but he's more powerful because he defeated Satan at the cross. Okay? Here's a familiar text to you, Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, He, Jesus, canceled the record of, of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's victory language there. He disarmed, here's the language again, all the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan is is powerful, but Jesus Christ is more powerful by far, not only because he created him. And I can't answer the why question there, other than it pleased the Lord to do so, and God has unerring wisdom. But Jesus is more powerful not only by nature of the fact that he created our adversary, but that he triumphed over him at the cross. Luther goes on in A Mighty Fortress is Our God to pen these words, Did we in our own strength confide? If so, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask me why that be? Jesus Christ, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name, from age to age the same. And he, Jesus, must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed 
his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What wonderful words. And the fourth and final point this morning on our outline, the conclusion from last week is we must be victorious. Be strong in God's strength. Be protected by God's armor. Be knowledgeable about your enemy. He's strong. He schemes. He's evil. And then we must put on the armor and walk out victoriously. Look at verse 13. Paul says this. He says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. There's some observations I want to make here in the minutes that we have left this morning. A on your outline is this. We've won the war, but the daily battles, they're still at stake. We know what the outcome is. We, we, we know what the final chapter of the story is. We win. Jesus Christ, our victor, has triumphed on our behalf, putting the rulers and the dominions and the authorities to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. We know the end of the story, but that does not mean that the everyday battles of the Christian will be won. Paul concludes verse 13 in the same way he began verse 10. He says, therefore, or in light, in light of what? In light of our formidable enemy and the cosmic battle that we're involved in. Therefore, take up or put on the whole armor of God. The, the, the word there, take up, it's the Greek word analambano. It's, it's an intense verb. It, it, ha, it has the idea of, of taking up the armor and doing it now, doing it without delay, doing it, doing it speedily. Paul's exhorting us to take up God's provided offense and defense, his means of grace, and to put them on at once. Do it now. Don't allow the enemy to find you defenseless. He is ever looking for a hole in your armor. Think about that for a moment. Our, our adversary, he's, he's bright. He's a schemer. Been around for a long time. Longer than you and longer than I. And he's ever looking for a hole in your armor. He's ever looking for a weak point. You might be asking yourself, in light of the fact that Christ is infinitely more powerful than Satan, do we really need to be concerned about the attacks of the evil one? And the answer to that question is, assurance of superiority doesn't diminish the seriousness of any given conflict, nor does it give certain assurance of victory in every instance of battle. It's just another way of saying we, we, we know what the end is. We, we know that we've won. But that doesn't secure every day's battle. What are you going to do when those flaming arts are, or those flaming darts are hurled at your heart? What are you going to do when the accusations come? What are you going to do when the temptation pops up on the TV? What are you going to do when you're asked to go somewhere that you shouldn't go, say something that you shouldn't say, spend time with people you shouldn't spend time with? Sin. Sin will take you farther than you're willing to go, keep you longer than you're willing to stay, and it'll cost you more than you're willing to pay. Are you prepared in advance? I have talked often about planning your obedience in advance. If you don't plan your obedience in advance, then you've got to make a decision to obey or disobey at the point of temptation. Friends, that's not a good time to make that decision. 
It's much better to make that decision well in advance. Plan your obedience before you ever get to the point of temptation. And then, like Titus said, the grace of God who has appeared, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. If you planned your obedience in advance, you're much more apt to be able to say no and to stand resolute on that no in the moment of temptation. Every time we give in to Satan's temptations, we lose the, the battle. We've won the war, but in that moment we've lost the battle. But thanks be to God that we can stand again clothed in Christ's righteousness. We've won the war, but the daily battles are still at stake. That's why Paul says, take up the armor of God. Take up the armor of God. You've got to be a fighter. And, and ladies, I, I know that, this, that the imagery contained here in the text probably doesn't appeal to you quite the same as it appeals to us men. I mean, you talk about taking up arms and doing battle to us men, and we're like, yeah, let's do that. I mean, the, the, the illustration would, would have to be like, like uh, you know, baking or something <laughs> to, to really get... Now, I'm, track with me for a second. I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm being a little bit silly, but at the same time, serious. How silly and how serious I need to think about for a second. But, but I just understand that, that the, the imagery here that Paul's using it may not get some of you ladies as fired up or as stoked as it gets some of us guys, but ladies, you are called, just like we men are called, to be fighters, to be aggressive. I mean, uh, you, you, you know the old saying uh, about mama bear when someone messes with her babies? I mean, the claws come a-flying. With that same tenacity, with that same vigor, we need to fight the evil B on your outline is this. We need to understand clearly that the spiritual battle, it's not a let go and let God operation. It's not just a let go, hands off, let God do all the work, and, and, and we're just going to cruise through this cosmic battle unscathed. It's, it's not. That's not true. Now look at Paul's language here. He says that you might be able to withstand in the day of evil. What's the purpose of taking up the full armor of God? Paul says, so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. The four words there, if you have have an ESV Bible laying on your lap, you you may see these four words, you may be able. If you have a New American Standard Bible on your uh, lap there, you may see the words, you will be able. Those four words there, and if you've got another translation, it'll be something along the lines there, but those four words are translated from a single Greek word, and the Greek word is dunamai. You've probably heard us talk about the word dunamis before. It means power. Matter of fact, Romans 1.16, the gospel will go forth with power. It's the word dunamis. It's explosive. It's like dynamite. Similar word here. When Paul says that you might be able to, that's that you might be able to with power, dunamai, withstand in the evil day. Paul uses that word dunamai, as a matter of fact, three times in this entire passage. Once in verse 11, once in verse 13, and then We'll get to it once in verse 16. And each time, though it's a, though it's a powerful word, it's, it's, in the, it's in the passive voice. And what that means, it simply means this. It means that power comes from the outside, not the inside. 
Paul said that back in verse 10, right? He said, be made strong in the Lord. He's reinforcing things he's already said. Friends, that's a good thing. I don't know about you, but I need to hear truth over and over and over again. You might say I'm hard of head at times or hard of heart. It's, it's not a bad thing to be reminded over and over and over of some of the same truths. As a matter of fact, some of the best or some of the preachers who have had the most significant influence in my life are those preachers who have just beat the same drum over and over and over again. Said the same thing over and over and over again. I need to be reminded of truth. Paul reminds us in here, he reminds us here that you might be able to, but remember that power comes from the outside and not the inside to withstand in the evil day. We're dependent upon the Holy Spirit to withstand, to withstand. Look at that word real quick, by the way. Paul says that you might be able to withstand. ESV says resist. New American Standard says, uh, I'm sorry, ESV says withstand. The NAS says to resist. Same, same word there. It's the Greek word anesthesmi. Uh, it's, it's a compound word there, anti-against. Uh, there, and histamine. It's where we get our word antihistamine from. It means to stand against or to block. And so when Paul says there that you might be able to withstand or that you might be able to resist, it means to stand against. That's what the word means there. It has the idea of facing a confrontation face to face. It means to set oneself against, to stand firm, uh, settled, immovable, to resist with firm determination. Ladies and guys, with firm determination, But it involves not only a psychological attitude, a mindset, it also involves a corresponding behavior. Spiritual battle is not a let go and let God operation. Matter of fact, that that whole uh, popular Christian phraseology would have been absolutely foreign to Paul. Paul knew nothing about let go and let God. When Paul tells us to stand firm, he's not envisioning a camp of Christians idly waiting for Satan's attack from the safety of their bunkers. The standing firm that Paul speaks of here. It's not of a brick wall. Think about a brick wall that's passively waiting for the assault of a battering ram. It's not what Paul's talking about here. Rather, the soldiers referred to in these verses, that's you and I, friends, have been drawn up into battle array, and we're called to rush into the fight. It's active language. Moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, we're both defending ourselves from the attack of the enemy with the armament God provided, and and we're moving forward. Look at that language there, withstand in the evil day. What's the evil day, you ask? Paul's not talking about uh, final battle at the end uh, of the tribulation period. Paul, Paul's talking about the evil day as in every single day. There's evil parts of it. Uh, remember what Paul told us just back in, uh, in earlier chapters? He said, for the days are what? The days are evil. The days are evil. And so withstanding in the evil day, well, that might be uh, just a few minutes when you walk out this door. It might be right now in your own heart. Sometimes evil comes in the form of temptation. Sometimes evil comes in the form of persecution. Sometimes evil comes in the, in the form of, of hurling lies about God to you. Are you ready? Will you be able to withstand, to stand against, to block antihistamine, to block the evil one? See on your outline, we must understand the relationship between dependence and discipline. 
If we're going to fight well, we must understand the relationship between dependence and discipline. Look at Paul's wording here. He says, and having done all to stand firm. The idea of that language there is to, is to thoroughly complete or to accomplish thoroughly. In other words, to outfit yourselves, to outfit myself with the armor of God. That's the belt of truth, the, breast, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, and prayer. To do so is to, re- is to resist the devil. And when you resist the devil, you'll be able to stand up to his attacks and his evil schemes. Think about this for just a moment as we draw it too close. Did you know that you are never told in Scripture to flee Satan? Think about that for a minute. You're never told to flee from Satan. We're told to flee from immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. We're told to flee from idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10.14. We're called to flee from the love of money, 1 Timothy 6.11. We're called to flee from youthful lusts, 2 Timothy 2.22. But we aren't told to flee from Satan. You know what we're told? Resist him. That's active language. So we're to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We can't fight on our own. That's a lost battle. We, We must be dependent upon God's strength. But at the same time, we're not to sit idly by waiting for an attack from the confines of our safe little bunkers. We are to be actively resisting the evil one. You see, there's a relationship there between dependence on God and discipline. Between dependence on God and discipline. The battle for holiness isn't won passively. Remember, Paul said things like, I beat my body and I make it my slave. Another translation of that says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. And that's active language. You have a part in this. This is not let go and let God. This is understand God's role and understand your role. Put the two together, put on the armor of God, and resist. Fight with great tenacity. Think about a sailboat for a minute. Let me just give you the imagery. Unless a captain raises the sail of a sailboat, that sail will catch no wind and the vessel will drift aimlessly. You got the picture in your mind now? A sailboat without the sail up, drifts aimlessly. But if the sail is raised and it catches the wind, then that boat or that vessel can be directed. Likewise, we in the Christian life must raise the sail. There's work for us to do. We must resist, but that sail must catch the wind of God's power. God has a role. We have a role. Those two things work hand in hand. So let me ask you the question, have you done everything you can to stand firm? Charles Wesley, who I I don't agree with in totality, theologically, but he penned some very wise words. He said this, he said, Leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. Take every virtue, every grace, and fortify the whole. Then having done all things and all your conflicts past, ye may overcome through Christ alone. And stand complete at last. D on your outline. I'm not going to say anything about this, but God's armor is perfectly suited for you. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. God's armor is perfectly suited for you as a Christian. And then lastly, E on your outline. Everything we need to make war is given to us in Christ.
Everything that we need to make war is given to us in Christ. Every essential piece of armament, truth, righteousness, gospel shoes, faith, salvation, the the sword of the Spirit and prayer, everything. We have everything we need. You need truth? Well, Jesus Christ is our truth. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You need righteousness? Jesus Christ is your righteousness. As a matter of fact, Paul reminds us, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You need the gospel? What's the gospel of Jesus Christ? You need faith? Well, our faith is in Christ. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the, the, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You need salvation? We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. Well, Jesus Christ is our salvation. Matter of fact, Luke reminds us in Acts, for there is salvation found in no one else. There's one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Even prayer is possible because of the victorious work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The writer of Hebrews says, We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ and by the new and living way that he has opened for us. Friends, you have everything you need to fight this battle. All the means of grace, are you using them? Are you doing all you can to stand? All you can in his strength.